Welcome back to episode 18. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. Guys, we're in the same room. That is so weird. This feels so weird. I mean, I guess everybody else hears music. We just don't play music. Yeah. It is weird. It feels weird because we're... We're sitting in the same room for the first time, like actually looking at each other in real life. We have no headphones. No, and that's weird because there's we can't no, hear ourselves. There's no screen. No. There's 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 a dog and a cat running around. Yes. It just feels like we're having a normal conversation, but we have a microphone in our hands, like we're giving some kind of TED talk. Yes. So welcome to our TED talk. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome. And welcome to the real episode eighteen. So I think you got a little weirder for a second. Yeah. Because I was trying to do the math. And I thought, let me get ahead and make the social media way in advance. Well, well, plus we recorded out of order. That's true. I think that was part of what had me confused. Yeah, that was just... <gasps> the cat just scared. <laughs> this, is, this is recording in real life. This is what happened. My cat's kind of an asshole, guys. Um, okay. Particularly to Lauren. Yes. So. I don't know why. Animals normally love me. They do. The rest of the animals love you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you might get some snoring, you might get some dog barking. Uh, we will try to keep it to a minimum, but yes. this is what happens when we record at my house yes. in the living room. So we are trying our new system. Um, it's exciting to be in person. You've been back for like a month and a half now. I know. I've been back for a month, but we've just had guests because mm-hmm. we were doing the Bike Safety Awareness Month series. And it is just so much easier with our interface to record with guests when we're in the same building, but not in the same room. So in a right. way, it still kind of felt like we were recording remotely, but now we're in the same room, which That's is cool. Weird. It's cool. But yeah, so we're, we're glad you tuned in through Bike Safety Month. Sorry, it got a little crazy. We didn't have any sort of crime stories for you, um, but we are going to make that up to you. Um, we're recording two episodes today, so you will have crime this week and next week. And then we have a special multiple part series that's coming up um, that will give you a lot of crime, all sorts of crime and craziness. So, yeah. So tune in for that coming in the next couple weeks. Um, But yeah. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in for Bike Safety Awareness Month. Uh, We still want to cover some civil cases. We are. We've been civil folks for a while. It's been a long time since we did a criminal case. So we will be bringing you lots of criminals. So yes. if you have been excited to get back to that, we will be giving you a bunch of stuff. So you've got lots of cool content coming your way very soon. Yeah. So originally, I think today's topic we were planning to do during May. Yes. Because that is the proper awareness month for it. Yes. But May kind of got a little away from us, guys. Um, it did. We did our party where we raised money for pain, which you heard from the director when we did our fentanyl episode, um, and life just got crazy. So we're doing it a few days late. Yes. And it's fine. Yes, it is fine. We're still raising awareness. We are. We are. So part of what we wanted to do, so May is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Month. And part of what we wanted to do with this podcast, as we've said from the beginning, is we want to do something with it. And so part of that is helping to raise awareness. That's why during these awareness months, we've been putting out special episodes. And of course, we did not want to continue on with the podcast without addressing the the importance of May being Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Month. So we have two episodes. We have one this week, and then also you get another episode next week that's going to talk about this topic. And before we get into today's episode, we're going to give some statistics and talk about why it is important to raise awareness for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples and Peoples Month. We do want to have a disclaimer at the outset that we have worked really hard to research these cases and we have done what we can to make sure that we are um, being appropriate in our language and in our pronunciation. So if we do mispronounce any word, please let us know. We would really appreciate that. We want to make sure that we're not saying the wrong thing. And as much as we are helping to raise awareness, there's also always more education to be done. So 
Definitely. I mispronounce words all the time. I mispronounce so. words that I use frequently. So, yep. It, we are Same. trying our best. Same. We are trying. Hard. We have tried looking them up. We have tried looking at multiple sources to try to make sure that they're accurate. Yes. Um, but, you know, if, if not and you know something about it, please let us know so that we can learn for the future. Yes. We would greatly appreciate that. Okay. So... Like I said, we do have a case today, but before we get into that, I did want to cover some statistics. So, you know, me, statistics, not my thing. Not my thing usually, but... It's usually it's mine. Thing. It is usually your <laughs> thing. Because you're... I mean, if there's a number, I want nothing to do with it. But these are very, very important. So before we get into that, we want to talk about some statistics because today we are covering a case that is currently unsolved. And... I really want us to raise awareness to the fact that this is not an uncommon situation, unfortunately, and that there are many, many missing um, Indigenous people. And so we'll start with a couple of statistics. So these statistics are all coming from the National Congress of American Indians Policy Research Center. And if you want more information on this, there are so many statistics out there that I really just wanted to focus on a few of the main ones. But we are going to link our sources, as we always do, and a few extra sources this week, just because there is so much information that we could cover that we just can't possibly do in one episode. So, without further ado, here we go with the statistics. All right. Okay, so when we are talking about a need for raising awareness for missing and murdered Indigenous people, the purpose is to raise this awareness because thousands of indigenous people who have gone missing or have been murdered in the United States don't get the same airtime that we see for lots of other cases. So for example, in the same year that Gabby Petito um, went missing and was murdered, there were many, many indigenous women that were also going missing at the same time. And they did not, many women of color that did not get the same attention on their cases as Gabby Petito did. Did you see the one? So we were both researching independently, like always. Um, and I know we ran across some of the same cases. Mm -hmm. Did you see the news articles and the case where there was an indigenous woman who went missing in the same location as Gabby? Yes. And like none of us ever heard about it? Yes. It's crazy. It is crazy. And well, we'll talk a little bit about why. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons why. There is no... Right. Exactly. This is the one thing that we've done and this is the solution. There are a lot of complicating factors as to why those stories go unreported. And mm -hmm. that's part of why we want to talk about this today. Right. Because there are many cases even beyond those. Oh, yeah. As I was telling you before, I joined the, a Facebook group um, that reports missing Indigenous people. Um, and I swear every time I'm scrolling through Facebook, there's somebody new that's missing. Yeah. Um, or their family hasn't heard from them. And a lot of them do end up getting found and, you know, they maybe were missing for a few days, but thankfully they were eventually found safe. But some of them, you know, that's not always the case. So I think it's very, um, it's a very big problem that a lot of people really don't know anything about. Yeah. And a lot of that goes back to um, some jurisdictional issues that we'll discuss today. Um, that have really inhibited investigations and tribes' ability to get access to the resources that they need to investigate these crimes, or worse yet, it's something that the state or the federal government has to do, and the tribe um, is really at a loss, and they're not able to do anything about it. Right. It's just a jurisdictional nightmare. Yes. Yes. And we will get into that nightmare. Okay. So again, let's go back to some statistics. So homicide was the third highest cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native girls aged 15 to 19 and women aged 20 to 24 in the year 2019. Wow. Yeah. And homicide was the fourth highest cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women aged 25 to 34, also in 2019. That's just crazy. It's, it's very, very, very shocking. And also more than more than four, this one was shocking to me, more than four in five Alaska Native and American Indian women, so 84.3%, have experienced violence in their lifetime. Wow. Yeah. Which, have you watched that show? What is it? Alaska Daily? 
No. Or Daily Alaskan, something like that. It's a, a network TV show. Yes, we have an um, we have an audience for your podcast, Lauren. Yes. Um, I have a cat that's just sitting on my lap, okay. staring at Lauren. Um, so you're presenting your TED Talk to, to Roe as well. Um, but it's I think it's Daily Alaskan, and it is a a drama series, but it focuses on missing or injured um, or you know Native American or Alaskan American women who have some sort of, they're either missing, they've been murdered. There's high instances of domestic violence mm-hmm. and the show covers that oh, and the pushback from local politicians. So it's a really good show. Yeah. It's fiction, but it's really good. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a reason for it though, right? right? Obviously that's based on reality. And they do cite some facts like at the end of the show, you know, they have the statistics to show this isn't just, it's not a work of fiction. Yeah. Um, or at least the basis of it is not a work of fiction. Yeah. So moving on with some more statistics, um, more than half of American Indian Alaska Native women, so 55.5%, have experienced physical violence by intimate partners in their lifetime. Um, almost half of those women have been stalked in their lifetime. Nearly two-thirds of American Indian Alaska Native women, so 63.8%, experience psychological aggression in their lifetime. And... American Indian Alaska Native women are 1.7 times more likely than white women to have experienced violence in the past year alone. And the murder rate of American Indian Alaska Native women is three times that of non-Hispanic white women. Wow. That's very significant. That's huge. Yeah. Just the domestic violence, you know, rates are, are... Ridiculous, really. Yeah. Um, that they're not having resources. I mean, I know domestic violence is a huge issue here in Fresno too, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's anywhere close to that level. Yeah. And oftentimes, the perpetrators in these crimes are um, non-native perpetrators. Well. So that's also very significant, especially right. when we talk about some of the jurisdictional challenges right. that we discuss in investigating these crimes. That makes it very, very difficult for purposes of an ongoing criminal investigation. Mm -hmm. And the last statistic that I wanted to share was that American Indian and Alaska Native women face murder rates more than 10 times the national average in 11 different counties throughout the U.S. 10 times the national average. In different counties. Yeah. In different counties throughout the U.S. That's crazy, though. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just sad that you have, you know, we have these statistics, but I feel like it's it's not as prevalent in the news as it should be at all. Yeah. It's very hidden. It's kind of, you know, I, I've heard about it in some instances before, but it's not like in the mainstream media. Yeah. I think that the first time that it really started to get into at least a lot more accessible to the public, I think was during the Gabby Petito case. I think luckily, as unfortunate as the situation was, I think that did give some opportunity for people to address, like, look, the internet has the ability to really make a difference in these cases because you can be somebody who is interested in helping out and maybe you have some information that's going to help them to solve a case. And so that was helpful in that sense. And there were people who were saying, hey, look, there are people of color going missing as well, and they're mm-hmm. not getting nearly the same media attention, and they need that same level of attention so that we can bring closure to those families or bring people home. Right. I mean, hopefully there's kind of, what was it, the Boise, was it University of Boise? or the University of Idaho. The University of Idaho murders. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are so many, you know, internet detectives that mm-hmm. jumped on that immediately. And we kind of saw the start of it with Gabby. Mm-hmm. Um and I am hopeful that they will start jumping on some of these unsolved cases. And I know when I was researching, trying to figure out what I was going to cover next week, there were a lot of the family members of missing women, you know, trying to go on podcasts, like small podcasts, mm-hmm. not even mainstream ones, like some that are only have five or six episodes, but yeah. their family members and loved ones are trying to get the word out in yeah. any way possible. Yeah. So hopefully it will start mm-hmm. getting out there more. Yeah. 
So we've hinted a little bit at some jurisdictional issues, and I think it's important before we get into the case to kind of talk a little bit more about what those issues are and how they came to be, because it really sets the stage for why the case we'll talk about today remains unsolved as of the day of the podcast. So that's really important. So when we talk about jurisdiction, maybe that's something that you know about. Maybe it's not. Maybe you've had the honor of taking a civil procedure class in law school and you know all about jurisdiction or uh, criminal procedure and you know all about jurisdiction. Um, but we're talking about jurisdiction in this case today and in really any criminal case. It's about who has the ability to conduct the investigation, who has the ability to make an arrest, who has the ability to do all of the things that you need to really bring justice to these families. Right. So, I mean, a lot of the times I don't think people necessarily realize on some cases, like the sheriff can't just jump in. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if it's in this, they don't realize if it's in the city, it's usually a police department Mm -hmm. and then you have the sheriff and then you may have some form depending on the state of like a state trooper. Um, Here in California, we have CHP, but they don't, typically do like state trooper stuff exactly um and then you have the federal level and then you add reservations Mm -hmm. that have their own sometimes they're their own sovereign nations Mm -hmm. which just adds a completely they have their own law enforcement too sometimes or at least their own laws and it just i think creates a battle of nobody knows where where to go or sometimes Maybe there's conflicts between reservation law enforcement and law enforcement in the county. And then that creates a battle Mm -hmm. where, unfortunately, the the people end up suffering. Yes. And when you think of it in terms of state government, sometimes it's a little bit easier to understand, right? Like if you do some small criminal act in California and New York police in some little town are not going to be able to arrest you for that, right? Because it's about where the crime happened, where you live. There's a lot of different factors that go into play, what the crime is, that depend on who's going to have the ability to actually do something about it. Right. And who has the power over you. So it can be kind of confusing when we talk about how, even though you're within the state boundaries, if you are on these reservations, they are their own, they're sovereign. They are their Mm -hmm. own people and despite the fact that they're within the bounds of california that does not mean that they are underneath their control or at least that wasn't the case until the 1950s which we'll talk about but that creates interesting jurisdictional Mm -hmm. challenges because previously they there was no control in terms of the state did not have any way of saying hey you need to do this when you know where you need to prosecute this crime or you need to arrest this person or we're going to come onto your land they were completely sovereign and they were free from the control of the state government so it was as if we had their own little nation within the state right and that is something that remained in place so that they could have their own sovereignty mm-hmm. and that they weren't under control of the state governments right and a lot of the times they have their own court system too yeah they have their own tribal court system they have their own tribal law enforcement system they operate in the same way that the states operate in the same way that the federal government operates right it would be kind of like a little island of canada sitting in the middle of the u.s exactly right we can't go into canada and start arresting people um you know think of it the same way yeah they are their own sovereign nation exactly and so the same things don't apply so you can't just have somebody coming in here telling you what to do when you have your own rules and your own way of enforcing those rules right And so in the 1950s, Public Law 280 was passed. And this was something that really threatened um, tribal sovereignty. And this was put into place without consultation with any of these um, tribal nations. So that caused a lot of backlash because what Public Law 280 did was it really took away a lot of their power. Because what it said was it was the federal government saying that state governments now had a certain amount of jurisdiction as it related to crimes that occurred on native land. So previously, the state government had absolutely no control over these independent nations because that was not their business, right? Exactly what you said. It would be like us going into Canada and trying to do something about it. Uh, So they couldn't go in there. But what Public Law 280 did, under the claim of helping out the tribes, Mm -hmm. they said that, okay, so for certain criminal conduct, we're going to allow the state to have concurrent jurisdiction with the tribes. 
And while that was kind of the theory behind it, right, we're going to help these tribes who maybe have a lack of funding resources to have a law enforcement team that is able to investigate some of these crimes, they thought, well, we're going to allow the state to step in and help. That was kind of the claim behind Public Law 280. What's weird to me is that, okay, going back to the law nerd point of view, so you can't sue another nation in state court, Mm -hmm. right? If you're suing another nation, it has to be in federal court. Mm -hmm. So here we're carving out an exception, essentially, to let a state government deal with another nation. Yes, it, it's very convoluted. It's not at, so they still right. have sovereign immunity, right? Right. Right. It, it would be, you know, you can't bring them into court, but it's a right. matter of whether or not the individual person, and, and that jurisdiction changes depending on who the perpetrator is. And right. Who the victim is. And I'm sure what kind of crime. Like, it's just yes. a weird little carve out mm-hmm. still if you're allowing, you know, exactly. citizens of a another nation to be sued, or not exactly. sued, but brought into court. Um, exactly. And that's a large part of the reason why there has been such pushback against public law 280, because this was passed. Nobody asked for this, right? Right. This is not something that they wanted because this really threatened their sovereignty. Exactly what you're saying that now they're saying that somebody else can step in and help them with something. Maybe they didn't really need that kind of help. Right. Now this also caused additional issues because, From the federal government's perspective, this law is put into place. And so in theory, these tribes are going to be able to rely on the state governments to help them investigate this influx of cases, right? Mm -hmm. Women are going missing, people are going missing, you have murders happening. And perhaps these, especially like with the smaller tribes, maybe they don't have a tribal court system. Maybe they don't have the resources to have an adequate law enforcement agency. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is... They thought, well, we're going to have the state allow, we're going to allow the state to help them to take that pressure off and in theory, lessen the amount of missing and murdered Indigenous people. I mean, in theory, I could see it being helpful for the smaller nations. You know, like you said, they have no court system. They have no law enforcement. Um, But I mean, someone probably should have asked first before just, you know, passing a law and saying we're here to help when maybe really. I think sometimes, yeah. History says, oh, we're helping, but we're not, we're not helping. No. Um, And part of what made this worse is that before Public Law 280 was passed, they, these tribes relied upon federal funding to Mm -hmm. support their law enforcement and their investigation efforts. And there were various federal programs that, that helped them to investigate and give them funding and things like that. Did they freaking cut their funding? They did cut the funding. They cut the funding on this prospect of now the state government's going to help them, right? So they need less funding for their own law enforcement agencies because now they have help. But then did they fund the help? Take a guess. Probably no. No, they didn't. So then the help is going to say, we don't have the funding to do this. And now nobody has the funding. Exactly. So even- It just made it worse. Yes. So even in a perfect world where in theory, this was going to help, now we just create kind of the same situation, right? Where- now we're underfunded and unable to keep up with this caseload because you've increased the caseload for state law enforcement and yet you've provided no additional funding. Plus, I'm sure it's going to create a conflict. Which it does. Because now tribal law enforcement has their budget cut, so they're not going to be happy. Yes. And then you have the the state, I guess, or whatever, the county law enforcement who now has a bigger caseload who didn't ask for it. No. And so they're going to be upset that now they have all this extra work with no extra help or resources. Exactly. And since then, that, that's not to say there haven't been strides mm-hmm. since then, because okay. this obviously was very flawed in the beginning, and still there are a lot of problems with it. But there have been laws and acts that have been passed since then to kind of try to help that, because it, it's just not feasible. You realize they messed up. It, in part. <laughs> Pretty much. Perhaps, okay. Um The word got out that right. that's simply not going to work. But in 2019, the Not Invisible Act was passed and a commission was created to help improve intergovernmental coordination and sought to establish kind of a best practices for state and local government or law enforcement agencies to investigate um, these cases. And so to kind of work together with the um, tribes in their area 
to come up with a plan for how is the best way for us to work with you and to come up with these policies when we have a case of missing and murdered people. I mean, at least that, that seems like a step in the right direction. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. And then in 2020, building upon that a little bit, Savannah's Act was passed. And the goal of Savannah's Act was to improve federal response specifically to missing and murdered Indigenous persons by increasing coordination again between federal, uh, state, and tribal law enforcement agencies. And the goal was for these tribal law enforcement agencies to actually work with the state agencies and the federal agencies to say, okay, these are the procedures that we want you to follow when we have a case that we need your help with, or when we have this case, this is how it's going to go. This is who has jurisdiction first, whatever might work. And the goal of that was to really tailor it to the individual um, tribes, right? So obviously we can't just have one blanket federal policy about this because the different needs are going to be different, right? Maybe you have Um, maybe you have a tribal nation that is completely self-sufficient. They do not need more funding. They have an entire tribal court system. They have great law enforcement system in place and maybe they can figure it out on their own. Or maybe you have these other ones that really do need a little bit more support that could benefit from state funding, federal funding, whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, at least they started figuring out their kind of their plan and the process, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, Nonetheless, we still have these very interesting jurisdictional challenges right. because in a case where you have concurrent state and tribal jurisdiction, there can kind of be this holding pattern because it's like, okay, who's going to have jurisdiction over this? Especially if you have an instance of a missing person because you don't really know if there's been a crime yet necessarily. Right. And if there is a crime, you don't know who the perpetrator is. So for purposes of invoking jurisdiction under Public Law 280... It can be unclear, and that can really put a hold on who's going to start investigating. Right. That would be a problem, because I think probably they have the laws where, okay, if it is somebody that is a, you know, state a citizen of, of California, right, mm-hmm. it's one law enforcement agency. Exactly. If it's somebody from whatever particular tribe that you're dealing with, then it's it's different, not realizing it could be years to determine who that person is who committed the crime exactly and especially when you have a situation where with a missing person for example when Mm -hmm. they're okay perhaps is going to be concurrent jurisdiction but then okay who do you report the missing person to right do you have you report it to both do you report it to one and hope that they get started on it but they maybe don't maybe you don't have the resources it's it's a mess it seems like it should be reported to everybody right like everybody gets a report of a missing person yes uh, all hands on deck to try to find that person. Yes. And we'll talk after we get through the case today about some of the efforts that have been made from various um, tribal entities that have worked to put together a database that is a little bit more fully inclusive, I guess, because there is still a lack of reporting of, even though statistics we gave today mm-hmm. are underreported severely yeah. for many reasons. Um, part of that is because these crimes are either a lot of them are unreported right. and a lot of them are misreported because there have been many instances of a, a crime where you have um, a victim that is uh, from a native tribe mm-hmm. and they were being misreported in terms of, you know, on a police report oh, and okay. that information, the data that's being pulled, yeah. if they were misidentified on that report, it's not going to come out the same. So Got it. there are resources that are out there that are trying to make more accurate database that has this information in it. Okay. But that's not a good project, so. Okay. But that's part of what we want to talk about. And we'll right. All of those things today. Okay, so that brings us to the case that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be kind of a short one because it is still currently unsolved. But really the focus of what we wanted to do today was just kind of bring awareness to... Why we need this, some of the challenges, and to highlight that this is not a unique case in in terms of pointing us to really getting changed. Yeah, sadly, it's not. No, it's not. And before we go to this case, Lindsay and I accidentally, like, came across (laughs) the same exact case. Yeah. We are like, oh, we have to cover this one. And then I independently was like, oh, yeah, I found a great one. And she found a great one. And then (laughs) I, like, got to the end of the research, and I was like, oh, 
We found the same case. We did. So. And then I think by then you had already prepped it. Yeah. I, I had just had it go. saved. Um, yeah, I went to, it was, there was a Facebook group. Yeah, and that's what it was. Space. And I went to go add the Facebook group and I saw that Lindsay was already parking. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I think you texted me and you're like, was, was this the case? And I was like, yeah, it was the one I was looking at. But it's a good one. It is. It, I mean, it's it's not, but it's 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 a good one to raise awareness. Yes, it is. That's what we mean when we mm-hmm. say it's a good one. It is a great case to be able to raise awareness, hopefully spread the word a little bit farther, mm-hmm. um, you know, since the person is still missing and the family is still trying to find their loved one. Yes. So today we'll be talking about the disappearance of Emily Risling. And Emily Risling is the daughter of Gary and Judy Risling. And she is affiliated with three different tribes, uh, but she is a member of the Hoopa Valley tribe in Northern California. And growing up, she was a straight A student. She was really involved in the community. She went to college at the University of Oregon on a full-ride scholarship where she graduated with a degree in political science in 2014. So she had an interest in politics. I saw a few sources that talked about mm-hmm. how she was hoping to go into politics one day and that she also sought to raise awareness for the, the significant number of missing and murdered indigenous people. Oh. Yeah. So she graduated high school in 2014 and she also had some community involvement. Like I said, she was an accomplished Cooper Valley tribal dancer so she was very well known within her community. She also has two children who at the time of her disappearance were 10 years old and um, one years old. Oh, wow. Old when she went missing. So she had very, very, very young kids. And prior to going missing and after going to college, Emily had been in an abusive relationship, which had reportedly caused her to turn to abuse. Okay. And... In addition to the drug abuse, following the birth of her youngest child, so who was born not long before she went missing, right. she had developed severe mental health issues, and specifically she had developed postpartum psychosis, Okay, which is considered a mental health emergency. Right. It that can, can be really severe. Yes. It can result in hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, and other really significant and dangerous behavior changes. Right. So um, they can become a threat to themselves. They can become a threat to their children. It's a very severe mental illness that mm-hmm. needs a lot of resources. Right. So because of that, she was really struggling with drug abuse, really struggling with postpartum psychosis and other mental health challenges. So because of that, she had a few run-ins with law enforcement prior to her disappearance. So um, where she lived on the um, Euro reservation, she had encountered Humboldt County sheriffs on on a few occasions. Right. And part of why they think that it's been difficult to get cooperation from Humboldt County sheriff is because there was kind of this stigma around her. And there was an interview with her um, family that talked about how because of these multiple runs of law enforcement, that that really impacted their willingness to help in finding her. And that that was not an uncommon experience. That when you have law enforcement, because of this new, Mm -hmm. not new law, but because you have law enforcement that does have some power over people on the tribe, in the tribe, you have these interactions with them and they get this stigma that unfairly contributes to how they treat these cases when they come to them. So I guess for those of you who don't know, Humboldt County is the very far north west like on the coast part um eureka is in that county um it's all the way up very far north uh part of of california it's not the normal beaches that you see when you think of california and you think of beaches fun fact for our listeners outside of of california our beaches are generally not warm no the water's freezing and like a lot of california has nothing to do with the beach at all yes Frozen Good part. No, there's no beach. No. Um, and there's no mountains. We're, we're well, close to it. We're like between them. Yeah, we are. We're in the, the valley. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely the like Redwood area. It is um, farther north than from where I'm from. But it is 
absolutely stunning and beautiful up there. And that coastline is also very dangerous. Like, it's a very jagged coastline. Oh, yeah. An area where you're going to go to the beach and swim or anything like that. Oh, no. It's a very dangerous coastal area. Yes. And it's cold. Yes. So, like I said, Emily had been struggling with mental health and she had had run into law enforcement and she was, you know, that, that, that created stigma. Her family right. that created a stigma against her. So it was reported that she, in the months leading up to her disappearance, she had, her behavior had changed significantly. She had been acting erratically for a few months and she had been doing things that were odd for her normal behavior, such as hitchhiking and wandering naked through neighboring reservations. Well, she has the postpartum psychosis. Exactly. And she doesn't have any help. Yeah. She hasn't, you know, sought help or maybe she probably didn't even realize she needed help. Yeah. So I did find a source. It was an interview with her family that discussed that there, there must have been some discussion of putting her into some kind of treatment facility because the nearest psychiatric facility was full. Okay. And so they were unable to take her. So there was some discussion of her getting some kind of well, I was, treatment. I was just going to say that up there... I mean, we. I mean, we've covered the healthcare in Reading. Yes, Reading would be the closest big town. And Eureka's not. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's probably it's going to be a couple hours um, to get to Reading through very winding mountain roads um, that most people try to avoid. If you get car sick, you avoid those roads. Um, yeah. But I mean, there's no easy way. You're kind of in the middle between Redding and then Redding's kind of in the middle of the state. So you're between Redding and Wairika in the middle of forest and mountains, essentially, where there's no, I don't even know where the closest hospital, I guess Eureka or Redding would be the closest hospitals. Yeah. And just because, I mean, even for, I don't know exactly what psychiatric facility would have been closest, but I mean... We don't know the quality of that. We don't know how Who knows? that would have been. There, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of challenges with that. Yeah. So this behavior, nonetheless, she was not able to get that type of support. But this behavior culminated in an instance where Emily was arrested for arson after she was found naked in a tribal cemetery next to a fire that she had started. Probably for warmth, not arson. Yeah, and, and again, this it seems like from all of the reports that this was linked to a mental health crisis. Right. And she was arrested for that, but her family actually pled with law enforcement to allow her to come home because she needed mental health treatment. So there, she at least had family that was recognizing right. and law enforcement was aware of the fact that she was going through this. Yeah. And it sounds like her family was trying to do everything that they could. Yes. So that was not long before Emily disappeared. And there is some, a couple of articles that conflicted. So there's a discrepancy between when she was last seen. Some sources say October 13th, 2021. Some sources say October 14th, 2021. Okay. So they go back and forth. But for the most part, the last sighting of Emily was on a bridge in a remote location on the Euro Reservation. Mm-hmm. And it was near Martin's Ferry. And she was seen walking naked across this bridge by a school bus full of students going to school. Okay. And that was the last time she was ever seen. And there were a few search parties that were put together mm-hmm. to try and find her. But that is, I believe it was 87 miles is how large the Europe Reservation, 85 square miles, Okay, is how big the Europe Reservation is. So that's a lot of ground to cover. That is. Especially when you think about the terrain in that yeah. area. It's not open grassland. We're talking no. about trees. We're talking about rugged coasts. We're talking about not something that's going to be easy to navigate. Yeah. And so they tried to put together a couple of search parties over a period of a few months, and to no avail. There has been no update on that case since then. And so to this day, her kids now live with her parents Mm -hmm. and there was a heartbreaking interview where her dad was talking about how her sons asked to go try to find their mom. Oh. And on one occasion he asked, 
whether they could go down to the river to find their mom. And then he asked, what happens if you don't find her? All those poor babies. So it's heartbreaking. And because the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department has not declared this a cold case, they the tribe has reached out to federal right. agencies that are ready and willing to help the tribe. But the challenge is that until the state, until the sheriff's department says that it's a cold case, the federal agencies don't have jurisdiction. They can't step in. And that's where we come into the jurisdictional issues. Yeah. Because they have to declare this a cold case in order for those resources to come in. But they just haven't allocated the resources to investigating this themselves. Have... Were there were there any reports of why Humboldt Sheriff hasn't declared it a cold case yet? Has it not been long enough? It hasn't been. I haven't seen anything concrete other than they've said that they're investigating it. And I don't know whether that has anything to do with the fact that it just hasn't been long enough. But right. Hmm. Yeah. So part of it, I think that's why her family was talking about this stigma. Right. behind the way that the local law enforcement had treated her yeah. based on these run-ins that they had with her in the past. It kind of seems like it's more of a, like the sheriff's department possibly has their mind made up of what happened. Right. And because of that, they don't want to declare a cold case. They want yeah. to, you know, find it, figure out what happened themselves because they think they already know. I don't know. I mean, hopefully they will declare it at some point and allow fresh eyes to come in and take a look and see... If, if they can find anything yeah. and hopefully bring her home or at least bring closure to her family. Yeah. All those poor babies. So if you have any information on this case, Emily was 32 years old at the time that she was missing. Uh, she's five foot two and weighed 140 pounds. She has short brown hair and brown eyes. And if you have any information regarding Emily's current location, please contact the Hoopa Tribal Police Department and their number is 530-625-4202 and we will, of course, include that information in the episode description as well as additional resources um, about who you can contact if you have any information about that case. Right, and we'll post photos and everything as well. Um, You can find it on our social media. So make sure if you are not already following us on there, you can start following us on our Facebook. You can find us at A Place in the Courtroom podcast on our Instagram at A Place in the Courtroom. Uh, So those, well, we also have a LinkedIn. I think we told you guys. Uh, We're at Place in the Courtroom. You should be able to find us. It has our normal logo and everything. Uh, but we will post all of the photos and the contact information for the tribal police on there. Um, that way, if anybody has any information, they can can share it with, with law enforcement. Yeah, and we'll also share information about the Sovereign Bodies Institute. The Sovereign Bodies Institute is an entity that is working to uh, raise awareness for this and to create a more accurate reporting system. And so there is a database where if you have information about um indigenous an indigenous person that has gone missing um report it to that we'll include that link to their database mm-hmm. information about what the sovereign bodies institute is working to do to create this database that's going to have more accurate reporting than we have because it will reveal that there are a lot more cases that are just being swept under the rug because of the standstill that is caused by these jurisdictional issues and also because there has just been a lack of reporting on these topics yeah And there is also something that is worth noting. This is not the only case, even during this time frame. In the 18 months prior to Emily's disappearance, there were five other women who went missing in the same area. So this is not just an isolated incident. No. This is something that was such a significant issue that there was an emergency declaration put out by the Euro tribe about this incident, about the fact that there are so many women that are going missing in this area and nobody's doing anything about it. I think around the same time, there was um, a woman who was murdered in Redding. Mm -hmm. She was found shot in her car with her boyfriend. And um, so, I mean, it's not even counting those that they have found deceased. Exactly. It's just ones that are, are missing. Yes. 
if five white, I'm sorry, but if five white women went missing in like say Fresno or any other area, it's going to be on all of like the national news, which is completely ridiculous. Exactly. Sorry, I'm going to come out and say it. No, like that's just like Gabby can. Petito. It yeah. went everywhere. Yeah. And we, that's not to say that we shouldn't do that. I think that's really important. It's, right. It's a fine line to walk because I think some people are, are afraid to say that. Right. Because perhaps it's a controversial perspective. But everybody needs to be getting the same amount of airtime. That's the, the thing. At the end of the day, we can't, right? Right. Like at the end of the day, it's not possible to report on every single one. Right. But can we have these more accurate databases? Can we yes. have people who are willing to you know, share information on social right. media? Have podcasts like this to to do our best to make sure that we are raising awareness for this. Because right. it's not just white people that are missing. No. I mean, it was amazing what what everybody put together with Gabby Petito. Mm -hmm. I mean, different, I watched the documentary on it. um, And I mean, I remember getting news updates and we were texting back and forth of like, have you heard this? Have you seen this? So, so much information was coming out and people were essentially brainstorming it together and providing information to law enforcement that it was, it was absolutely amazing what they did. Mm -hmm. It was not just law enforcement searching through you know body not body cameras but like dash cam stuff like that um where if we had that level of awareness for everybody that goes missing Mm -hmm. yeah because also what is happening and at the beginning of this podcast like in our very one of our very first episodes we talked about how True crime consumption has kind of become a pastime and a form of entertainment for a lot of people right and you know, there are a lot of people who are just interested in stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And so they go online and maybe they try to help these types of investigations. Right. And sometimes it helps. Sometimes it provides misinformation. Right. But it if does. we can start these conversations and we can have an accurate reporting system, then maybe you can learn about somebody that you may have seen. That that's you right. It's something that you have access to, something that's local to you, that you could actually make a difference. And that's not to say you can't make a difference if it wasn't local to you. Right. Because you definitely can. You can raise awareness, you can talk about it. But you have to be careful with that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. That's not to say that sometimes helping is just sharing the story. Right. That some right. people, during, whether it was Guy Tito or with the murders in Idaho with the college exactly. students, some people speculate Jumped and they take conclusions. We have to remember that we've got to verify information right. before we do that. So right. it is important to. Not only raise awareness, make sure that you are doing your part to provide accurate information. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that anything, if we ever share information that's not accurate on this podcast, let us know. Yes. And we or we try very we hard do. to triple, quadruple check sources. Yes. Um, but, you know, it can still happen. So right. it's not only about making sure that we're working to raise this awareness, but make sure that you're also finding accurate information. Right. But I think, you know, telling telling Emily's story and sharing her photo, you know, it doesn't might not seem like a lot, Mm -hmm. but if it can get the photo out there and maybe one of your friends has, has seen her Mm -hmm. or, you know, knew somebody that knows her, like anything Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Or maybe you know of somebody who mm -hmm. also went missing in the same area and near the same time. Right. It may provide information. So, um, you know, not only like and follow us, share our stuff, especially if we're sharing um, information about an unsolved either crime or a missing person. It can really help. And the family, you know, the family needs needs answers and to find their loved ones. Yeah. And join. I would encourage anybody to join these Facebook groups that have information about missing people around you. It was alarming. So the one I, I, I joined is National but there is an alarming amount of individuals that pop up. It is like every time I'm scrolling, there's a new missing person. Mm-hmm. It's concerning. It is. And sometimes we want to be blind to that. Right. I, as, as a population. I, right. You don't, in a perfect world, you're not sitting around thinking about all of these people that are going missing. Right. And all these horrible things that are happening around you. But we need to be aware of those things. Because from one standpoint... It happened to you. Oh, but yeah. At the same point, you might have an answer that could solve this. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of reminds me of like Fresno. We have such a runaway problem, mm-hmm. right? 
And I don't think people realize it um, because it's very easy to put our blinders on and we go about our life and we don't see it. Um, and I mean, there we have definitely had an uptick in, you know, Fresno PD shares immediately if there's there's a child missing and we can get that information out there. So it's getting broadcast a little bit more. Um, but there is an alarming, you know, number just in our community. And so I'm sure... It's the same in, in other communities as well, and we're just not aware. Yeah, and that contributes to, I think that stigma that Emily's family talked about, mm-hmm. that's not uncommon. That you oh, see no. that even anywhere when you hear a case of a missing person and they have, they struggle with mental health issues, a lot of people jump to that. Or with drug abuse. Exactly. Uh, particularly with, with drug abuse. Yes. And we talked about that in the episode when we had, um, we talked about it's been a We did. That there's this stigma mm-hmm. around around people who are recovering addicts or people who have struggled with drug abuse or people who have severe mental health issues. Right. And that doesn't mean that you can't be a victim of a horrible crime. Right. If anything, in many instances, you become more vulnerable. Yes. And that doesn't mean that they're any less deserving. Right. Of the fullest support from their community. Yes. So hopefully stories like this help change that stigma. Or at least raise awareness around it. Um, so maybe we're a little bit more aware. Um, I guess, yeah, just aware. Yeah. Of our own thoughts of, oh, well, she was doing drugs. Yeah. And uh, that's really where it starts, I think. It does. It starts with hearing these stories and seeing that there's a person behind that. Right. And recognize, because like we talked about again in the fentanyl episode, I'm like, oh, that wouldn't be me. That mm-hmm. wouldn't be my kids. That wouldn't right. be my loved ones. Right. But to kind of recognize when we have those thoughts. Mm-hmm. Because that's impacting the way that you interact with your environment, the way that you are, you know, maybe you got information, maybe you stalked somebody. Right. But you maybe, you know, blew it off as, mm-hmm. oh, that person is is a drug addict. I'm not going to pay them any mind. Or I'm going to totally ignore that. Not recognizing that perhaps right. that person needed your help. Yes. Well, I think this definitely gives everybody something to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will come back next week with a little bit different um it's it's not a missing person next week but it is a different story about um a different tribe um and so yeah we'll see you in the next episode okay like and follow us on all of our stuff you can contact us that way you can contact us at a place in the courtroom at gmail.com if you have any suggestions um but please share and please share emily's information Other than that, we will talk to you guys next week. See you next time.